This is a civil procedure update COE offered by the New York Appellate Digest. My name is Bruce Freeman. I'm the editor of the New York Appellate Digest. And these um, civil procedure update COEs are based on cases that were released in 2023 and summarized on the New York Appellate Digest website. The summaries have been compiled into monthly reversal reports, and it's those monthly reversal reports which constitute the written materials for these civil procedure update CLEs. And we're starting with the reversal report for January 2023. So the page references are to that January 2023 civil procedure reversal report. First case is Flowers on pages 3 and 4. This case illustrates the leniency afforded a motion to amend a complaint. Here, the 10-month delay in moving to amend and the speculative claim of prejudice by the defendant did not justify denying the motion, and the Second Department reversed. As the Second Department explained it, quote, Mere lateness is not a barrier to the amendment. It must be lateness coupled with significant prejudice to the other side, the very elements of the Latches Doctrine. The party opposing the application has the burden of establishing prejudice, which requires a showing that the party has been hindered in the preparation of its case or has been prevented from taking some measure in support of its position. The defendant failed to demonstrate that it would be surprised or prejudiced by the proposed amendment. That's the end of the quote from the Second Department decision. So the takeaway here is that lateness alone will not justify the denial of a motion to amend the complaint. The de defendant must make a concrete demonstration of prejudice to warrant denial. Next is Kiamulera on page 4. Here the Second Department explained that it has the power to search the record and grant summary judgment to a party who did not appeal, as long as the appellate issue was raised in the motion court. And in this slip-and-fall case, the Second Department found that the non-appealing party did not have notice of the dangerous condition. The next case... Mucknick or Mucknick, M-U-C-H-N-I-K, on page 6 of the January 2023 Civil Procedure Reversal Report. This case presents a discovery issue. There was a dispute between the parties, and the plaintiff's attorney brought a motion to compel the defendant to appear at a deposition under threat of preclusion, and Supreme Court granted the motion. The Second Department reversed because plaintiff's attorney's good-faith affirmation was insufficient. Here's how the court explained what should be in a good-faith affirmation. Quote, Pursuant to 22 NYCRR section 202.7 subdivisions A and C, a motion relating to disclosure must be accompanied by an affirmation from moving counsel attesting to a good-faith effort to resolve the issues raised in the motion, including the time, place, and nature of the consultation, as well as the issues discussed, end quote. So when there's a discovery dispute and a party makes a motion to get the court involved, 
that motion must be accompanied by a sufficient good faith affidavit which details the attempts to resolve the dispute. Next is MS versus Rynek Union Free School District on page 7 of the January 2023 Civil Procedure Reversal Report. Here, a student, an infant, sued the school district. The General Municipal Law Section 50-I, Subdivision 1C, requires that a suit against a school district be commenced within one year and 90 days. The question was whether the infancy toll of a statute of limitations in CPLR Section 208 applies to that general municipal law limitation period. The Supreme Court said no, but the Second Department said yes. The infancy toll in CPLR Section 208 does apply to a lawsuit against the school district. As the court explained it, quote, Supreme Court erred in concluding that any claim by the infant plaintiff based upon incidents that occurred prior to May 31, 2017 would be time-barred. CPLR Section 208 tolls a statute of limitations for the period of infancy, including the limitations set forth in General Municipal Law Section 50-I. It is undisputed that the infant plaintiff was an infant at the time of the events underlying this action and at the time that the action was commenced. Next is J.P. Morgan on page 8 of the January 2023 Civil Procedure Reversal Report. Here the First Department held the motion to renew should have been denied because the failure to include all of the necessary papers in the first motion was not explained. The bank had moved for summary judgment in a foreclosure action but did not include proof that the notice of default was mailed to the homeowners. The attempt to fix that omission by making a motion to renew was accepted by the motion court but rejected on appeal by the First Department. As the First Department explained it, quote, A party seeking summary judgment should anticipate having to lay bare its proof and should not expect that it will readily be granted a second or third chance. The plaintiff failed to demonstrate any valid reason why the mailing affidavit could not have been submitted on its prior motion. Since the affidavit was submitted without demonstrating a reasonable justification for failing to submit it on the prior motion, renewal should have been denied. End quote. So the takeaway here, a motion to renew cannot be used to add papers which should have been included in the first motion. Next is People versus Jewel Labs, that's J-U-U-L Labs, on pages 9 and 10 of the January 2023 Civil Procedure Reversal Report. The First Department held that New York had personal jurisdiction pursuant to CPLR Section 302, Subdivision A1, over Juul, the manufacturer of electronic cigarettes, as well as two corporate officers involved in marketing the cigarettes in New York. The complaint alleged, and I'm now quoting from the uh, decision, causes of action pursuant to general business law sections 349 and 350 for deceptive acts and practices and for false advertising, Pursuant to Executive Law Section 63, Subdivision 12, 
for repeated and persistent fraud and illegal conduct in violation of general business law sections 349 and 350 and section 5 of the Federal Trade Commission Act, which is 15 U.S.C. section 45, and for public nuisance, end quote. The court explained, quote, the people submitted internal emails and reports demonstrating that defendants traveled to New York City for investment meetings, that defendants personally attended Jewel's launch party in New York City. Jewel also sought to arrange in-person meetings between defendants and both New York targets and broadcast media organizations, and that defendants and Jewel considered the New York City launch to have been a success. Defendants were involved in marketing strategy, which included months of events in New York, identifying New York as the target of Jewel's northeastern U.S. marketing efforts at and after launch, advertising on billboards in Times Square, hosting in-store product samplings at New York vape shops and social events, and escalating marketing efforts in New York City in, New in the New York City metropolitan area post-launch. After New York proved to be a substantial market for Jewel's product, defendants went so far as to describe the efforts as New York City takeover and to declare that New York City users should be the focus of Jewel's branding and marketing, end quote. So on that basis, personal jurisdiction pursuant to CPLR 302, subdivision A1 over Jewel had been established. Next is matter of New York asbestos litigation, pages 10 and 11. This is still in the 2020, January 2023 Civil Procedure Reversal Report. This is another jurisdiction case. The defendant manufactured valves containing asbestos in Connecticut where the valves were sold and used. Plaintiff lived and worked in Connecticut. Defendant operated an executive and sales office in New York City. Supreme Court found New York had jurisdiction. The first department reversed, finding that there was no connection between defendants' activities in New York and the injuries suffered by the plaintiff, which was uh, contracting cancer. The court explained, quote, All conduct giving rise to plaintiff's claims occurred in Connecticut, as he was not a New York resident, did not purchase or work with defendants' valves in New York, and does not claim to have suffered harm in this state. Without an adequate relationship between New York and plaintiff's claims, specific jurisdiction is lacking regardless of the extent of a defendant's unconnected activities in the state." End quote. So the takeaway here, there must be some connection between a defendant's activities in New York and the plaintiff's injuries before New York jurisdiction over a lawsuit can be justified. Here, plaintiff's injuries and defendant's manufacturing and sales activities, which were alleged to have caused those injuries, took place exclusively in Connecticut. The fact that the defendant had an executive and sales office in New York was deemed insufficiently related to the alleged cause of plaintiff's cancer. Next is Davis on pages 11-12 of the January 2023 Civil Procedure Reversal Report. This case illustrates what does not qualify as documentary evidence which will support a motion to dismiss pursuant to CPLR 3211, subdivision A1. 
the defendant employer submitted affidavits, deposition testimony, and letters to prove that the defendant employee was not acting within the scope of his employment at the time of the traffic accident. Those categories of evidence do not constitute documentary evidence within the meaning of the statute. Supreme Court found the evidence sufficient and the Second Department reversed. As the Second Department explained it, quote, a motion to dismiss on the ground that the action is barred by documentary evidence pursuant to CPLR 3211, subdivision A1, may be granted only where the documentary evidence utterly refutes the plaintiff's factual allegations, conclusively establishing a defense as a matter of law. To be considered documentary, evidence must be unambiguous and of undisputed authenticity. Judicial records, as well as documents reflecting out-of-court transactions, such as mortgages, deeds, contracts, and any other papers, the contents of which are essentially undeniable, would qualify as documentary evidence in the proper case. Neither affidavits, deposition testimony, nor letters are considered documentary evidence within the intendment of CPLR 3211 subdivision A1, end quote. So the takeaway here, documentary evidence which will support a motion to dismiss includes mortgages, deeds, contracts, etc., but not affidavits, deposition testimony, or letters. Next is U.S. Bank, pages 12 and 13. This is still the January 2023 Civil Procedure Reversal Report. The issue here is what amounts to neglect to prosecute such that a plaintiff is not entitled to recommence the action within six months of the dismissal pursuant to CPLR Section 205, Subdivision A. Here the plaintiff was not ready to proceed on the trial date. Supreme Court held that constituted neglect to prosecute and dismissed the complaint with prejudice. The First Department reversed, finding that one instance of neglect was not enough. As the First Department explained it, quote, while the prior action was dismissed due to plaintiff's unreadiness to go forward with the trial as scheduled, the trial court, in dismissing the case, did not set forth on the record any additional instances of neglect by the plaintiff that could demonstrate a general pattern of delay in proceeding with the litigation, as opposed to one particular lapse. The court's statement that the case had been languishing since 2010 does not suffice inasmuch as it fails to specify any specific conduct demonstrating a general pattern of delay. As this court has recently held, a general pattern of delay must comprise more than one instant instance of dilatory conduct, end quote. So the takeaway here, a plaintiff will not be deprived of the six-month recommencement benefit of CPLR Section 205A, unless there has been more than a single instance of neglect. And here there was one instance where plaintiff was not ready for trial. Next is Economy Premier Assurance Company, pages 13 and 14 of the, of the January 2023 Civil Procedure Reversal Report. This is a products liability case and the issue is whether New York could exercise long-arm jurisdiction over an Italian company which made a component 
which was a supply line hose in a dishwasher manufactured and sold by a non-party. The underlying action was a property damage insurance claim, presumably resulting from the failure of the hose. Supreme Court held New York had long-arm jurisdiction. The Second Department reversed, finding there was no evidence the Italian company purposefully conducted business in New York. The court wrote this, quote, The defendant was an Italian corporation with its business located in that country. It manufactured, sold, and distributed its goods in Italy and had no office or agent in New York. The plaintiff failed to show that the defendant purposefully availed itself of the privilege of conducting activities in New York so as to subject it to long-arm jurisdiction pursuant to CPLR Section 302, Subdivision A1. The plaintiff also failed to make a prima facie showing that personal jurisdiction exists under CPLR Section 302, Subdivision A3. Since the defendant was not subject to the jurisdiction of New York, the plaintiff's service of process upon it was not valid, and it cites CPLR Section 313, end quote. Next is Marte, M-A-R-T-E, pages 14 and 15 of the January 2023 Civil Procedure Reversal Report. This traffic accident case brought up an unusual venue issue. The traffic accident happened in Nassau County, where the defendant corporation had its office, but the Certificate of Incorporation designated New York County as the location of defendant's principal place of business. Defendant did not, in fact, have an office in New York County. Plaintiff brought the suit in New York County, and Supreme Court granted defendant's motion to change venue. The First Department reversed, finding venue in New York County solely based upon defendant's certificate of incorporation was appropriate. The court explained, quote, Plaintiff properly placed venue in New York County based upon the corporate defendant's initial, initial certificate of incorporation, designating New York County as the location of its principal office, although the company has no office there. And then it, it says C, CPLR Section 503, Subdivision C. While defendants annexed to their moving papers the police report for the subject motor vehicle accident, indicating that defendant's vehicle was registered to a Nassau County address on the day of the accident, and an affidavit from the corporate defendant's vice president averring that its office was in Nassau County when the action was commenced, the corporate residence designated in the initial certificate of incorporation controls for venue purposes, end quote. So even though there was no real connection between the traffic accident defendant and New York County, the fact that the certificate of incorporation that was on file designated New York County as the principal place of business was enough to support venue in New York County. Next is Suarez, pages 15 and 16. And this is the last uh, summary in the January 2023 Civil Procedure Reversal Report. This personal injury case raised a question about how to handle the claim that the verdict sheet was confusing, which was first brought up after the jury was discharged. Supreme Court set aside the verdict. The First Department reversed 
letting the verdict stand. If plaintiff doesn't object before the jury is discharged, the objection is waived. As the court explained it, quote, the trial court should not have set aside the verdict based on a determination that the verdict sheet was on its face unclear and confusing. None of the parties or the court perceived any lack of clarity until after the jury was discharged, and there was no evidence in the trial record of, sub of substantial jury confusion. Juror affidavits should not be used to impeach a jury verdict absent extraordinary circumstances not present here. Plaintiff did not object to the verdict sheet or the charge until after the jury was discharged and therefore waived those objections, end quote. So that it concludes the section of this Civil Procedure Update CLE based upon the January 2023 Civil Procedure Reversal Report. We're now moving to the February 2023 Civil Procedure Reversal Report. The first summary in the February 2023 Civil Procedure Reversal Report is Wall Street Mortgage, pages 4 and 5. If an affirmative defense is not raised in a pre-answer motion to dismiss or in the answer, can it be raised for the first time in an amended answer? The Supreme Court said no, but the Second Department said yes. As the Second Department explained it, quote, Supreme Court should not have denied defendants cross-motion for leave to amend his answer to assert an affirmative defense. In the absence of prejudice or surprise to the opposing party, leave to amend a pleading should be freely grant granted unless the proposed amendment is palpably insufficient or patently devoid of merit and it says C, CPLR, Section 3025, Subdivision B. Lateness alone is not a barrier to the amendment. It must be lateness coupled with significant prejudice to the other side, the very elements of the Latches Doctrine. Although a defense is generally waived under CPLR 3211, Subdivision E, where not raised in an answer or made the subject of a motion to dismiss, it can be interposed in an answer amended by leave of court pursuant to CPLR Section 3025, Subdivision B. End quote. So the takeaway here, a defendant gets a second chance to raise an affirmative defense in an amended answer. Next is Citibank, pages 5 and 6 of the February 2023 Civil Procedure Reversal Report. What are the criteria for substituting a specific defendant for a John Doe in the complaint? Supreme Court said the substitution here was okay, but the Fourth Department reversed. As the court explained it, quote, defendant correctly contends that he was improperly substituted as John Doe number one pursuant to CPLR section 1024. Inasmuch as the original complaint failed to mention decedent's death, and defendant is being sued in the amended complaint in his capacity as an heir to decedent's estate, defendant does not fit within the categories of John and Jane Doe's set forth in the original complaint, and thus cannot be substituted therefore. End quote. So the takeaway here, 
A party who does not fit any of the Jane or John Doe categories as defined in the complaint cannot be substituted for a Jane or John Doe in an amended complaint pursuant to CPLR 1024. Next is Herrera on page 6 of the February 2023 Civil Procedure Reversal Report. Supreme Court in this case denied the motion to amend the complaint because the proposed changes were not redlined, which apparently means the changes were not marked in red. The First Department reversed, noting that the proposed amendments were sufficiently described and easily discerned. So the takeaway here, although CPLR 3025 subdivision B requires that any motion to amend or supplement pleadings shall be accompanied by the proposed amended or supplemental pleading clearly showing the changes or additions to be made to the pleading, marking the changes in red is not necessary. Describing the changes in the accompanying papers was deemed sufficient here. Next is Sanders on pages 7 and 8. This case illustrates the relation back doctrine, which was invoked to add two physicians' assistants to this medical malpractice action after the statute of limitations had run. Supreme Court allowed the addition, the second department reversed. The physicians' assistants were not employees of the physicians named in the suit, so they were not united in interest with the defendant physicians and plaintiff did not demonstrate the physician's assistance had timely notice of the lawsuit. So two prongs of the relation back doctrine were not met. As the second department explained it, quote, In a negligence or malpractice action, the defenses available to two defendants will be identical, and thus their interests will be united only where one is vicariously liable for the acts of the other. As the physician's assistance defendants were employed by the practice, not by the individual doctor defendants, there's no vicarious liability based on respondeat superior. The plaintiff failed to set forth sufficient facts to demonstrate that the, that the physician's assistance defendants were directly supervised or controlled by the doctor defendants in their care and treatment of the decedent. The record is devoid of evidence that the physician's assistance defendants had noticed that an action had been commenced against the doctor defendants prior to the expiration in 2014 of the statute of limitations for the medical malpractice and wrongful death causes of action, end quote. So the takeaway here is that an employer-employee relationship which gives rise to the employer's vicarious liability for the actions of the employee supports a finding that the employer and employee are united in interest for purposes of the relation back doctrine. But here the physician's assistants were employed by the practice, not by the individual defendant doctors. So the physician's assistants were not united in interest with the defendants and the relation back doctrine did not apply. Next is Citibank on page 8 of the February 2023 Civil Procedure Reversal Report. Here the defendant filed her amended answer 20 months after filing the original. The period when the amended answer could have been served as of right pursuant to CPLR 3025 subdivision A had long passed, 
but the plaintiff did not reject the amended answer. Supreme Court struck the answer as untimely, but the Second Department held plaintiff waived the uh, objection by accepting the amended answer. So the takeaway, if a plaintiff accepts an untimely answer submitted without leave of court or stipulation, objection to the answer as untimely is waived. Next is matter of Ionello on page 9. Here the 4th Department sent the matter back to family court because the judge did not make any factual findings in the order on appeal in this custody case. The court explained, quote, It is well established that the court is obligated to set forth those facts essential to its decision. Here the court completely failed to follow that well-established rule when it failed to issue, issue any factual findings to support its initial custody determination, nor did it make any findings with respect to the relevant factors that it considered in making a best interests of the child determination. Effective appellate review, whatever the case, but especially in child visitation, custody, or neglect proceedings, requires that appropriate factual findings be made by the trial court, the court best able to measure the credibility of the witnesses, end quote. So the takeaway, appellate review is precluded in a custody case and perhaps any non-jury case where the order on appeal is not accompanied by findings of fact. The appellate court depends on the judge's credibility determinations. Next is Andy's Petroleum, pages 10 and 11 of the February 2023 Civil Procedure Reversal Report. Sending the matter back to Supreme Court, the First Department explained how New York's borrowing statute works in this action which accrued in Ecuador. Under the borrowing statute, the action must be timely in both Ecuador and in New York. The court explained, quote, Under CPLR Section 202, New York's borrowing statute, where a non-resident plaintiff sues on causes of action that accrued outside of New York, the claims must be timely under the limitations period of both New York and the jurisdiction where the action accrued. In effect, the shorter of the two states' statutes of limitations controls the timeliness of the action. If the foreign state does not have causes of action directly analogous to the New York causes of action, the limitation period of the foreign causes of action that are most closely analogous to the New York claims are to be applied. Next is PB-38 Doe, pages 11 and 12. Here, the Fourth, Depart- the Fourth Department in an opinion by Justice Bannister, held that the revived statute of limitations for lawsuits alleging sexual abuse under the Child Victims Act does not violate due process. The Fourth Department explained, quote, The legislative history noted the significant barriers those survivors faced in coming forward with their claims, including that child sexual abuse survivors may not be able to disclose their abuse until later in life after the relevant statute of limitations has run because of the mental, physical, and emotional injuries sustained as a result of the abuse. 
New York currently requires most survivors to file civil actions against their abusers by the age of 23 at most, long before most survivors report or come to terms with their abuse, which has been estimated to be as high as 52 years old on average. Because the statute of limitations left thousands of survivors of child sexual abuse unable to sue their abusers, the legislature determined that there was an identifiable injustice that needed to be remedied, end quote. Next is HSBC, pages 12 and 13. We're in the February 2023 Civil Procedure Reversal Report. Here there were two foreclosure actions. One was subject to dismissal as time-barred, and the other was timely. Supreme Court granted the motion to consolidate the two actions. The Second Department, in an opinion by Justice Dillon, reversed, finding that the consolidation was an improper end run around the statute of limitations. Next is Cass, pages 13 through 15 of the February 2023 Civil Procedure Reversal Report. Here, Supreme Court improperly converted a breach of contract action to a CPLR Article 78 proceeding. The court explained why that was error. Quote, Under CPLR 103 Subdivision C, courts are empowered to convert a civil judicial proceeding that was brought in the improper form to the proper form and convert a motion into a special proceeding. Here the court erred in concluding that a proceeding pursuant to CPLR Article 78 was the proper form. A CPLR Article 78 proceeding is not the proper vehicle to resolve contractual rights. Indeed, it is well settled that mandamus relief lies only to compel the performance of a purely ministerial act and may not be used when there are other available remedies at law, such as a breach of contract action. End quote. Next is Zanani on page 15. This is an, another case dealing with the court's ability to convert an action to the proper form. When a proceeding is not brought in the proper form, CPLR section 103 subdivision C prohibits dismissal solely on that ground. Here, a special proceeding should have been brought as a plenary action. The court wrote, quote, Supreme Court should have converted the special proceeding into a plenary action rather than dismissing the petition as CPLR Section 103C prohibits dismissal of a proceeding solely on the ground that it was not brought in the proper form, end quote. Next is People v. Carabello on page 16. Here the people sought to prove an out-of-state conviction for sentencing purposes. The third department held that the document was not admissible because it wasn't certified pursuant to CPLR 4540 subdivision C. As the court explained it, quote, the people's submissions lacked the certificate under seal, showing that the attestor was the legal custodian of the records and that this signature was genuine as required by CPLR section 4540 subdivision C, end quote. Next is Elaine, pages 17 and 18, and we're still in the February 2023 Civil Procedure Reversal Report. 
Although a judge has the discretion to deny a motion for a default judgment if the plaintiff does not demonstrate the action was viable, here the allegations in the complaint, proven by affidavit and deemed admitted, stated a viable cause of action, so the default judgment should have been granted. The court explained, quote, A plaintiff seeking leave to enter a default judgment under CPLR 3215 must file proof of, one, service of a copy or copies of the summons and the complaint, and two, the facts constituting the claim, and three, the defendant's default. Defaulters are deemed to have admitted all factual allegations contained in the complaint and all reasonable inferences that flow from them. However, a court does not have a mandatory ministerial duty to grant a motion for leave to enter a default judgment and retains the discretionary obligation to determine whether the movement has met the burden of stating a viable cause of action. Plaintiff's submissions, including her affidavit in which she denied signing the deed and other documents related to the transfer of property, were sufficient to demonstrate her causes of action were viable. Next is BGO, B-I-G-I-O, pages 18 and 19. This is another case where Supreme Court should have granted the motion for a default judgment. The court noted the facts can be proven by affidavit, as it was in the prior case we just discussed, or, as in this case, by a verified complaint. The court explained, quote, A party seeking a default judgment must submit proof of service of the summons and the complaint and proof of the facts constituting the claim, the default, and the amount due, citing CPLR 3215, subdivision F. To demonstrate facts constituting the claim, the move-ont need only proffer proof sufficient to enable a court to determine that a viable cause of action exists. The move-ont may do so either by submission of an affidavit of merit or by a verified complaint, if one has been properly served. Plaintiffs established the facts constituting their claim. Their verified complaint alleges that Plaintiff Maria Vigio was walking in front of defendant's property when she tripped and fell on a defective sidewalk condition, sustaining injuries, and Plaintiff stated in her verification that these allegations were true to her own personal knowledge. Because defendant by defaulting is deemed to have admitted all traversable allegations in the complaint, including the basic allegation of liability, the allegations were sufficient to enable the court to determine that a viable negligence cause of action existed. End quote. Next is Zwen Yang, pages 19 and 20 of the February 2023 Civil Procedure Reversal Report. Here, the Second Department, in an opinion by Justice Wooten, held that the plaintiff's daughter, who had personal knowledge of the relevant facts, should not have been allowed to act as an interpreter for her mother's deposition in this medical malpractice case. The court explained the extraordinary circumstance under which a relative may act as an interpreter. Quote, We hold that the appointment of an individual to serve as an interpreter for a relative or to serve as interpreter in an action or proceeding in which the interpreter has personal knowledge of the relevant facts 
is only permissible under exceptional circumstances. In evaluating whether such circumstances are present, courts must consider the following. 1. Whether sufficient information has been disclosed by the party in need of an interpreter to the court and to opposing parties so as to allow for a thorough search for a disinterested interpreter. 2 whether an exhaustive and meaningful search has been conducted for a disinterested interpreter. 3. Whether the potential interpreter is the least interested individual available to serve as interpreter. And 4. Whether the potential interpreter is capable of objectively translating the testimony verbatim, which may only be assessed after the court has conducted an inquiry of the potential interpreter. Unless the court is satisfied that each of these four elements has been satisfied, then the potential interpreter must not be permitted to serve as interpreter in view of the danger that the witness's testimony will be distorted through interpretation, either consciously or subconsciously. End quote. At this point, I'm going to insert a verification code to be placed on your attorney affirmation. The verification code is interpreter. Again, a verification code for the Civil Procedure Update CLE is verification. Next is Hetelikides, that's H-E-T-E-L-E-K-I-D-E-S, page 20 of the February 2023 Civil Procedure Reversal Report. The Court of Appeals, in an opinion by Judge Rivera, held one, a tax foreclosure is an in rem proceeding against the real property, not an in personam action against an individual, and two, the steps taken by the county to give notice of the in rem proceeding, which included publication, were sufficient in this case. The Court of Appeals wrote, quote, Defendants commenced an in-rem tax foreclosure proceeding and mailed the statutorily required notice to the publicly listed owners of the property, posted and filed the notice, and publicized the notice in the press. Upon learning that a person listed as an owner died before the notices were issued, defendant county treasurer also personally contacted the sole business located on the property in an effort to identify and personally inform a manager, owner, or any person in charge of the pending foreclosure proceeding. Under these circumstances, defendants provided legally adequate notice of a validly commenced tax foreclosure action. End quote. Next is State of New York versus VAYU, V-A-Y-U, Incorporated, page 21. The Court of Appeals, in an opinion by Judge Garcia, reversing the appellate division, held that New York had long-arm jurisdiction of a Michigan manufacturer of unmanned aerial vehicles, UAVs, purchased by SUNY Stony Brook. SUNY Stony Brook decided the UAVs did not meet their needs and returned them for replacement. They were not replaced and SUNY Stony Brook sued for breach of contract. The court explained the criteria for New York's long-arm jurisdiction as follows, quote, The nature and purpose 
of a solitary business meeting conducted for a single day in New York may supply the minimum contacts necessary to subject a non-resident participant to the jurisdiction of our courts. Here there was more than this bare minimum. The meeting was part of a far-reaching and long-standing relationship. Plaintiff's claims are based on the sale of two UAVs, and the UAV manufacturer's contacts in New York were directly related to efforts to resolve the dispute over operability of the purchased UAVs. Thus, there is an articulable nexus or substantial relationship between defendants' New York activities and the party's contract, defendants' alleged breach thereof, and potential damages. Finally, the exercise of jurisdiction must also comport with due process, a constitutional inquiry focused on the relationship among the defendant, the forum, and the litigation. Those requirements are satisfied here, end quote. Next is Elite Wine and Spirit, pages 22 and 23 of the February 2023 Civil Procedure Reversal Report. Here, the First Department, in an opinion by Justice Gonzalez, determined the tenant liquor store was entitled to a so-called Yellowstone injunction, giving the tenant more time to cure the defaults cited by the landlord. A Yellowstone injunction is unique to landlord-tenant disputes, and the criteria for granting it are much less stringent than the criteria for a standard preliminary injunction. The court explained, quote, In keeping with public policy, the public policy against for- forfeiture, courts grant Yellowstone relief on far less than the normal showing required for preliminary injunctive relief. The tenant need only demonstrate that, one, it holds a lease, two, it received a notice of default, notice to cure, or threat to terminate the lease. Three, it requested injunctive relief prior to the termination of the lease or expiration of the cure period. And four, it is prepared to cure the alleged default by any means short of vacating the premises. Once the tenant establishes those elements, the motion court may exercise its discretion to issue a Yellowstone injunction tolling the tenant's time to cure. End quote. Next is Velasquez, page 24. Here the Second Department held that Supreme Court should not have denied plaintiff's motion to vacate the default, which resulted in an order granting summary judgment to the defendant. The court explained, quote, In order to vacate a default in opposing a motion pursuant to CPLR, 5015 subdivision A1, the moving party is required to demonstrate a reasonable excuse for the default as well as a potentially meritorious opposition to the motion. Here the plaintiff's excuse of law office failure was reasonable, and she also demonstrated that she had a potentially meritorious opposition to the defendant's motion. Under the circumstances of this case, including that the scheduling error by counsel for the plaintiff was brief, isolated, and unintentional, with no evidence of willful neglect, and considering the strong public policy in favor of resolving cases on the merits, Supreme Court improvidently exercised its discretion in denying that branch of plaintiff's motion, which was to vacate the order. End quote. 
So the takeaway, if plaintiff's excuse for a default is reasonable, here it was a scheduling error, if the error was brief, isolated, unintentional, and did not evince willful neglect, and if plaintiff has a meritorious cause of action, plaintiff's motion to vacate the default should be granted. Next is Espinal on page 27. Here the Second Department, reversing Supreme Court, noted that a tort action against the Port Authority has its own unique Notice of Claim Timing Requirements codified in Section 7107 of the Unconsolidated Laws of New York. Unlike an action against a municipality which requires service of the Notice of Claim within 90 days of the accrual of the action, Section 7107 requires service of the Notice of Claim against the Port Authority 60 days before the action is commenced." End quote. Next is Wells Fargo Bank on page 28. CPLR 306-B allows a court to grant an extension of time to serve a defendant for good cause and in the interest of justice. Here, the extension should have been granted in the interest of justice. As the court explained it, quote, Good cause requires a showing of reasonable diligence in attempting to effect service. Under the interest of justice prong of the statute, a plaintiff need not establish reasonably diligent efforts at service as a threshold matter. Under the interest of justice standard, the court may consider diligence or lack thereof along with any other relevant factor in making its determination, including the expiration of the statute of limitations, the meritorious nature of the cause of action, the length of the delay in service, the promptness of a plaintiff's request for the extension of time, and prejudice to the defendant. End quote. So the takeaway here, um, the statute which allows an extension of time to serve a defendant has two different sets of criteria, one called good cause, which requires a showing of diligent efforts to serve, and the other called in the interest of justice, which doesn't necessarily require proof of diligent efforts to serve. Next is matter of Cayuga Nation. Page 30, here the Fourth Department, reversing Supreme Court, noted that the lack of standing defense is not a jurisdictional defect. Therefore, if the defense is not raised in the answer or a pre-answer motion to dismiss, it is waived and, not, and cannot be raised by the judge sua sponte. The Fourth Department explained, quote, Standing is an aspect of justiciability, which, when challenged, must be considered at the outset of any litigation. Nonetheless, a party's lack of standing does not constitute a jurisdictional defect, and therefore a challenge to a party's standing is waived if the defense is not asserted in either the answer or a pre-answer motion to dismiss. Here the motion was not based on petitioner's alleged lack of standing. Thus, we conclude that the court erred in sua sponte reaching that issue of standing with respect to that cause of action. End quote. 
So the takeaway is an objection to standing has to be raised in the answer or a pre-answer motion to dismiss. And if it's not waived, I mean, if it's not made, it is waived and even the judge cannot raise it at that point sua sponte. Next is 244 Linwood, page 31 of the February 2023 Civil Procedure Reversal Report. Second Department reversing the judgment after a trial held that the trial judge should not have declared a witness unavailable and admitted the witness's deposition testimony. The witness became ill during the trial and was taken to the hospital, but there was no evidence in the record that the witness would not have been able to testify. The court explained, quote, CPLR 3117, subdivision A33, permits the reading of a witness's deposition at trial where the court finds that the witness is unable to attend or testify because of age, sickness, infirmity, or imprisonment. In exercising its discretion under CPLR 3117, the trial court may not act arbitrarily or deprive a litigant of a full opportunity to present its case. Here there is no information in the record regarding the nature of the witness's illness or the treatment he received or whether he was hospitalized and for how long. End quote. And the final decision summary in this February 2023 civil procedure reversal report is Gomez on page 32. Once a defendant makes a demand to change venue, the defendant has 15 days to make a motion to change venue pursuant to CPLR 511 subdivision B. The 15-day time limit is strictly enforced. Here, the motion was made 20 days after the demand and Supreme Court should not have granted it. So the takeaway here, once a defendant makes a demand to change venue, the defendant has 15 days to make a motion to change venue pursuant to that statute, CPLR 511 subdivision B. The 15-day time limit for the motion is strictly enforced. Here it was made 20 days after the, the demand, and the appellate court said Supreme Court should not have granted it. That concludes this uh, January-February 2023 Civil Procedure Update CLE.